Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present John Boniface, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People, who discusses what's at stake for accountability and the rule of law in Donald Trump's impeachment trial that begins in the U.S. Senate on February 9th. Dr. Robert Hecht, professor of clinical epidemiology at Yale University's School of Public Health, who examines the obstacles to equitable coronavirus vaccine distribution here in the U.S. and in developing nations around the world. And Monine Naismith, a staff attorney with the public interest environmental law firm Earth Justice, who talks about current efforts to shut down the Line 3 tar sands pipeline that's currently being built in Minnesota. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Haiti's robust opposition is returning to the streets of Port-au-Prince to demand President Jovenel Moïse resign once his term ends on February 7th. In late January, protesters were met with rubber bullets and several were injured. President Moïse says his term runs for another year and is proposing a new constitution which will be voted on in an April referendum. Activists and journalists complain Moïse is using the national police as a tool of repression against civil society. Opposition leaders are organizing a general strike leading up to February 7th, which is the date that former dictator Baby Doc Duvalier was forced to flee the Caribbean island nation in 1986. Opposition parties are pressing U.S. President Joe Biden to back their call for presidential and parliamentary elections later this year. In recent days, President Moïse ordered the arrest of former opposition senator Nanel Kasi, a member of former President John Bertrand Aristide's political party. Kasi was seeking the release of several political activists on Haiti's west coast. Moïse had earlier warned his opponents that the nation's intelligence unit was watching them. Kasi's arrest led to protests in Port-au-Prince and was preceded by months of police harassment, including the arrest of his bodyguards. The civil war in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray has plunged the region into a humanitarian crisis. During the fighting, two million people were forced to flee from their homes, and six million don't have adequate food, water, or medicine. Aid workers warn of an impending famine. One of the founders of the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, Sabat Naga, has been arrested. His party, which had led the Ethiopian government for almost three decades, was pushed out of power amid massive protests in 2018. The government, led by Ethiopia's President Abiy Ahmed, has been fighting the TPLF for the past two months. The Economist magazine reports that the TPLF's political leaders are now in hiding as fighting rages across Tigray, a region bordering Sudan and Eritrea. There are reports that markets, shops, and banks are closed while inflation skyrockets. When staff from Doctors Without Borders arrived at a hospital in the town of Adwa, they discovered it had been looted, with no refrigeration for life-saving medicines. Trucks with humanitarian supplies inside Tigray are stopped by local commanders, citing security concerns. 
There are now increasing fears that the government is holding back food aid in order to starve out rebel forces. While Democrats were celebrating the inauguration of President Joe Biden, union workers were on strike at the Hunts Point Produce Market, New York City's food hub in the Bronx. 1,400 Teamsters Local 202 union food workers at Hunts Point went on strike for six days, the first such job action in 35 years. The strike won a 10% wage increase over three years and improved health care benefits, with strong support from New York City progressive activists, including Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. A key turning point came when 300 members of the New York Police Department, in riot gear and batons, clashed with hundreds of striking union members and supporters as they blocked traffic. Six people were arrested, but union solidarity grew as the confrontation received white attention on social media. The union had demanded a dollar-an-hour wage hike, while management offered just a 32-cent-per-hour increase, which the Hunts Point frontline workers, who had endured hundreds of cases of COVID-19 and six deaths among them, considered an insult. The strike was a sign of growing militancy among essential workers during the coronavirus pandemic. Angela Fernandez, a leading immigrant rights attorney and New York City Council candidate, said organized labor is ripe for a resurgence, with major strikes as an indispensable locus of public agitation. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The House of Representatives voted 232 to 197 on January 13th to approve new articles of impeachment against Donald Trump, the first president in U.S. history to be impeached twice. 222 Democrats were joined by 10 Republicans in sending a single article of impeachment against former President Trump for incitement to insurrection. The impeachment trial that begins in the U.S. Senate on February 9th will consider evidence of Trump's culpability in the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th that killed five people. A motion challenging the constitutionality of the former president's impeachment, sponsored by Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, failed to pass the Senate on January 26th, but won the votes of 45 Republicans. The outcome was significant in that Democrats need the votes of 17 Republicans to convict Donald Trump in the impeachment trial. Your reporter spoke with John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People, who discusses what's at stake for accountability in the rule of law in Donald Trump's impeachment trial. Well, this is a, a critical moment for our history and for our Constitution and our democracy. What's at stake here really is whether or not a, a president who would incite an insurrection will be held accountable as the Constitution is laid out via the impeachment process and beyond that via federal criminal law uh, and, the, and the execution uh, and implementation of that. You know, the, the, the fact here is, is that this president, leading up to the January 6th insurrection, fomented this big lie 
that the election had been stolen, that it was fraudulent. No evidence whatsoever of that, yet he kept fomenting this this lie and then, of course, urged people to come to Washington for what he said would be wild back in a December tweet. Uh, and then on the day of the insurrection, he, he said it, uh, at the very rally prior to the march to the Capitol, uh, you know, they needed to fight like hell, that he was going to march with them. You know, they were going to go there to stop the steal. So all of this leading up to the insurrection and then the day of the insurrection, all of this points to clear incitement by Donald Trump to have these people commit this violent, seditious act, this mob, to come in, threaten uh, and engage in violence, threaten it on members of Congress, five people dying in the process, including a, a police officer, the Capitol Hill Police. Uh, and th- these are the most serious charges that could be issued against a president or a former president via the impeachment process. And what's critical now is that the Senate has to do its job uh, and hold a free and fair trial, which means hearing all the evidence. And then, in our view, if free speech people uh, needs to convict uh, and disqualify this individual from ever holding future federal office. It's widely believed that getting 17 Republican senators to convict Donald Trump in an impeachment trial in the Senate is a steep climb. And I believe you need that two-thirds vote to convict him in order to get to the second part to disqualify Donald Trump from holding future political office, which is just a majority vote. You need the two-thirds conviction vote beforehand. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, I, I, you know, I do think that as the uh, days go forward leading up to this trial, more is going to come out that could influence these 17 votes. I also think that the presentation that the House impeachment managers plan to make will likely be very dramatic um, and will demonstrate further how this former president incited this insurrection And ultimately, these senators are going to have to decide where they stand uh, from a history standpoint. You know, are they going to go down in history as senators who look the other way uh, when a former president was faced with accountability for the worst impeachment charges that could ever be leveled against a president or former president inciting an insurrection? Or are they going to do the right thing? Uh, stand on the right side of history and vote to convict. We did face, as you know, Scott, this same question back when the House engaged in its first impeachment. But the Senate had the opportunity then uh, to remove him. And those senators who chose not to, to acquit him, despite the overwhelming evidence from that impeachment trial, uh, you know, they're going to go down history for having allowed the continued rule by Donald Trump in this country, which led to the incitement of the insurrection. So they are partly responsible uh, for what ended up happening because they never convicted in the first place. And I don't think some of these senators want to make that mistake again. But th- that being said, you know, the, the, the focus here needs to be on bringing forward the evidence to the American people and to the U.S. senators uh, and ultimately uh, 
the history will be the judge. If they decide they're going to acquit this president in the face of this overwhelming evidence, history will be the judge of them. That was John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of the group Free Speech for People, and co-author of the book, The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Find more analysis and commentary on what's at stake in the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After the United States witnessed the highest number of deaths and hospitalizations of the coronavirus pandemic early in the new year, the infection rate began to decrease in early February. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, over 26 million people in the U.S. have now been diagnosed with COVID-19, and more than 445,000 have died. With several vaccines now being administered globally, a new threat has emerged in variants of the COVID-19 virus, initially found in the U.K., Brazil, and South Africa. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to President Joe Biden, says the next six weeks will be critical to vaccinate as many people as possible in order to suppress new, more dangerous mutations of the virus. As President Biden and congressional Democrats push forward with their plan to pass a $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill, which would include a third round of stimulus checks and funding to boost the nationwide COVID-19 vaccination effort, it's become apparent that there's a racial gap in the distribution of COVID-19 vaccinations. Data shows that Black and Latinx Americans are receiving disproportionately fewer vaccinations than white Americans. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Robert Hecht, professor of clinical epidemiology at Yale University's School of Public Health. Here, Dr. Hecht examines obstacles to equitable vaccine distribution here in the U.S. and in developing nations around the world. The fact is that the the groups that have been vaccinated earliest in the rollout, the healthcare workers, the doctors and the hospital workers, the uh, residents of the nursing homes, this has tended to favor people who are better off economically and whiter. Uh, We're not seeing people of color that are reached through those kinds of uh, policies or, or algorithms. And this is why my colleague at Yale, Dr. Shan Sulin, and I wrote an article for the New York Times two, two and a half weeks ago, calling for states to also focus in on and target communities that we call hotspots. Uh, a lot of these are immigrant communities where people have uh, blue collar jobs. Uh, they get exposed to the virus working uh, in stores and in, uh, as taxi drivers or Uber drivers through their uh, professions. They live in very dense housing. Sometimes they can't afford large uh, places to live. So you get multi-generational families living uh, at close quarters. To, to deal with that, we need to really do two things. One, on the supply side, we need to make some of these mass vaccination sites uh, more accessible to these hotspot communities. And we need to go in there with mobile um, and smaller local sites using clinics and pharmacies and other sites so that people living in these communities can get to the mass vaccination sites. And when they can't make it, that uh, something is available to them close to where they, they live. The other side of it is that we know that, unfortunately, a lot of the misinformation, the anti-vaccination campaigns have been targeting these communities 
Uh, there's a lot of a lot that's out there in social media and in other forms of communication in Spanish, in Portuguese, and other uh, languages that are spoken in some of these communities. And people are confused there, and they're hesitant to go and be vaccinated. So if we're going to really do something about equity, Scott, we need to both deal with this, what I call the supply side, getting the vaccine there to the people who need it in these communities, uh, and then trying to work with the local leaders and uh, organize communications so that some of this misinformation is, is overcome and uh, people feel confident that it's, it's safe and it's desirable and it's going to be very beneficial to them to be vaccinated. If we do those things, uh, then we're going to see this uh, inequity, as you described it, uh, reduced or even disappear. From the global perspective, what must be done to ensure that poor nations around the world, where much of the population is mired in poverty, have access to vaccines, not just as a humanitarian gesture or priority, but also I've come to understand that the world can't overcome the pandemic if nations are left out of a comprehensive vaccination program. Could you say more about that? Until we try to protect and vaccinate people in other parts of the world, uh, our own population is not going to be completely safe. Unless we sealed off our entire country, which is impossible. We're such a large and important country. We live through movement of people. We have our diplomats and business people and others who, who, who need to leave here and go to other countries, and we have people from other countries coming here. That's part of the lifeblood of, of the United States. So in that kind of an interconnected world, we need to be concerned about vaccination and the COVID status of these other countries, uh, the Senegal's and Nigeria's and uh, Cambodia's and other countries, Bangladesh's of this world. I don't think there's a problem in these places with either wanting to be vaccinated against COVID or knowing how to get the vaccination out there. The problem is they just can't get access to the vaccines. They're all being uh, bought up by the rich countries like the United States and the Europeans um, who have the money, the purchasing power. And right now there's a kind of a vaccine nationalism going on where everybody maybe understandably wants the scarce vaccine supply. So the, the main solution, I would say, is trying to put together a fund uh, to help purchase COVID vaccines for these countries that may not be able to uh, afford them. And there is an effort underway there called COVAX, C-O-V-A-X, but right now it's only raised a very small fraction of the money that's needed. But we have a good model for this because a lot of these childhood vaccines against diarrheal disease, against uh, cervical cancer, against pneumonia, where the U.S. and the European countries and uh, some foundations put money into a common fund every year to help these poorer countries to be able to afford these very valuable life-saving vaccines. We just need the willingness of the rich countries to do so. And the amount of money involved is not that great. I think it's estimated that to vaccinate everybody in some of these uh, developing countries, uh, we need to raise perhaps $10 billion, $20 billion. It's not small change, don't get me wrong. But when you see uh, Congress working on a $900 billion rescue package and a $1.5 trillion package and the same thing in Europe, um, if we only set aside a small fraction of the money that we're putting into our own rescue plan, we could do a lot to help these other countries. That was Dr. Robert Hecht, professor of clinical epidemiology at Yale University School of Public Health. 
and president of Pharaoh's Global Health Advisors. Learn more about innovative methods of equitable distribution of coronavirus vaccines in the U.S. and around the world by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. One of President Joe Biden's first acts in office was to cancel the presidential permit for building the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have brought 850,000 barrels of extremely polluting tar sands oil per day across the border from Alberta, Canada. The pipeline would have carried the oil through the Midwest, connecting with other pipelines to move to the Texas Gulf Coast for refining. Exploitation of the tar sands has been passionately opposed by the indigenous residents of northern Alberta, where the industry is wreaking havoc on the ecosystem and their communities. Less well-known is another tar sands pipeline that also originates in Alberta, simply called Line 3. The developer, Enbridge, insists it doesn't need a U.S. presidential permit because it secured one decades ago, while the company maintains that Line 3 is just a replacement pipeline. Now under construction across the entire state of Minnesota, the pipeline passes through or near the reservations of three native tribes. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Monine Naismith, a staff attorney with the public interest environmental law firm Earth Justice, which represents the Red Lake Band of Chippewas, the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, the indigenous rights group Honor the Earth, and the Sierra Club. Here she talks about current efforts to shut down the Line 3 pipeline. The terms of Line 3's cross-border permit, which is what was revoked for KXL, because there was an existing project, there was a permit in 1991 that was entered into. However, the permit itself can be terminated at will by the Secretary of State of the United States or the President, essentially. There is also there are provisions in that permit that really raise questions about um, the extent to which the applicant or Enbridge can, in fact, modify the project as much as it has here. So even though Enbridge is calling this a replacement pipeline, it, in fact, is a brand new project. What they're building right now is an entirely new pipeline along an entirely new route. It's much, much longer and it also is going to have about double the capacity of the existing line. So there is a real question mark um, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet about whether or not the administration could rescind the same permit from Enbridge and Line 3 that it rescinded for KXL. What more attention has been gathering is there's another way that the Biden administration could pull the permits that are not the transborder permit, but the Army Corps of Engineers, what allowed Enbridge to start constructing Line 3 quite recently in December, is the issuance of a series of permits, mostly under the Clean Water Act. And we have been representing uh, two tribes and Honor the Earth, as well as the Sierra Club, arguing already in court about the fact that those permits were illegally 
granted in November by the Trump administration. And this actually is a lot more analogous to another pipeline fight that has gotten a lot of attention, which is the Standing Rock Sioux fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. But the law is very clear that before issuing a permit under the Clean Water Act, an evaluation under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, that the Army Corps needed to look at the risk of spills from the pipeline and needed to look at how that risk of spills would affect local tribes and tribal resources. And they did neither here in the line three. So there is not only the sort of KXL route that the Biden administration could have, but also if they are going to take their obligations to the tribes seriously, they have to do a far better job of looking at, among other things, the risk of spills, the climate change impacts of this project, and they have not done so. So there are regulatory provisions that the Army Corps has that would allow them to admit we didn't look at the appropriate set of information in issuing these permits. These permits have to be rescinded and we have to go back and redo our analysis to include these very important pieces. And that gives them ample grounds to stop construction and to, to really take the risks of this project seriously. Monine Naismith, we interviewed Indigenous leader Winona LaDuke back in the fall about this fight, but fill us in on what's happening on the ground right now. Enbridge is moving forward with construction incredibly quickly. They have cleared an incredible amount of trees. They've cut down large trees, small trees. They are actively digging and trenching and destroying wetlands. They are actively running incredible risks um, with respect to some very important cultural resources. And I think certainly there's real concern about the risk of covid so even if the pipeline is stopped, the land and water have been permanently altered. And of course, that also has a huge impact on the indigenous communities there. What's happening on the fight in court right now? We filed our lawsuit on Christmas Eve. And despite the fact that the Army Corps of Engineers didn't give us all the documents that they used to make their decision, we moved as quickly as we could. And we also filed what's called a motion for a preliminary injunction that right now is in front of the judge that if we were to win that motion, and we're obviously pointing to the irreparable harms that are being caused by things like tree, cutting down these trees that will never grow back, that would, we would hope, stop pipeline construction, at least while we have an opportunity to get our day in court. That is fully briefed in front of the judge um, in the D.C. District Court, and so we hope to be able to get a positive result there. If we don't, we will obviously keep going and persist um, and try to move the case as quickly as possible. So in addition to calling on the Biden administration to you know, do the right thing and at the very least admit that their analysis is, is so flawed that it needs to be redone, we are also hopeful that we will prevail in court and stop construction um, and get the permits overturned. That was Earth Justice Staff Attorney Monine Naismith. Learn more about the campaign opposing construction of the Line 3 pipeline project in Minnesota by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed 
by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, KPFT in Houston, Texas, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.